Today on the Matt Wall Show, Discovery just announced a new show about cross-dressing children called Generation Drag. The corporate media will continue grooming and sexualizing kids no matter what it costs them. Also, Biden thinks the economic devastation he's causing is hilarious. The DHS secretary tries to defend his agency's new Ministry of Truth. And in our daily cancellation, we meet a trans-queer, Latinx, neurodivergent public theologian. What do any of those words mean? We'll find out today, maybe. All of that and more today on the Matt Wall Show. So do you have a, an account with Coinbase, or if you're thinking about opening one as well, then you want to listen to this. With an Alto Crypto IRA, you can trade crypto like Bitcoin. You can also avoid or defer the taxes. You can get into investing in crypto and do it in a tax-advantaged retirement account. Alto's Crypto IRA is the easy way to get crypto into an IRA. You can trade all you want without the tax headache. Um, it's real simple to do. Create an account in just a few minutes. Invest with as little as $10. There's no setup charges. And what that means is that this is easy to do. It's cheap. Uh, it's something as simple, so simple that even I could do it and figure it out. Secure trading 24-7 through Alto's integration with Coinbase. There are 80-plus coins available, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cardano, many other coins as well available. Multiple ways to fund your account. You can uh, make a cash contribution. You can transfer cash from an existing IRA or rollover, an old 401k. Again, all very easy to do. Open an Alto Crypto IRA account with as little as $10. Just go to altoira.com slash matt. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A dot com slash Matt. Go to altoira.com slash Matt. So last month, Discovery Media merged with uh, Warner Media to create a new media conglomerate creatively called Warner Brothers Discovery. Uh, you'll notice how all the people in media who are so concerned about Elon Musk taking control of Twitter rarely bat an eye when these giant corporations merge or buy each other out or come together through other means of corporate copulation and form these giant monopoly behemoths. That is, they aren't concerned until they start losing their jobs, as was the case over at CNN, when the newly formed Warner Brothers Discovery started cutting off the dead limbs, starting first with that rotting, useless piece of lumber called CNN+. Plus. The goal is to you know, bring everything, all of the various smaller streaming services owned by the company, under uh, Discovery Plus and HBO Max. Now, after the merger and the merciful euthanizing of CNN's streaming service, Warner Brothers Discovery needs some successes, you know, it needs some hits. Uh, it needs to get some attention. It needs, it, needs, it needs hits is what it needs. And it apparently believes that it has just that with a new series just announced debuting on Discovery Plus in a few weeks called Generation Drag. This is a reality show produced by Tyra Banks and uh, revolving around five child cross-dressers as they prepare uh, a bit for a big drag show in Denver, which invites, quote, teen queens, kings, and non-binary performers ages 8 to 18. Now, the children featured on the Discovery Plus show seem to run that age gamut from very young to simply young, and all of them, them of course, too young to be involved in the liberal West version of Baka Bazi. Discovery released a trailer for this abomination on Friday, uh, the comments, if you go to YouTube, are disabled. I wonder why. Um, you can actually see why they're disabled when you watch the clip. Let's watch this. Welcome to the Pink Palace, my lovely friends. I first discovered drag at 13. I didn't know what it was, but I knew I wanted it. Put on the wig and the makeup, and I'm someone completely different. I'm so pretty! My drag name is Vanessa Shimmer, and she is just a force you cannot reckon with. How do I parent a child that wants to do drag? 
I never expected drag to be a part of our lives. Oh my God, these are so cute. These are problems I never thought I had to prepare for. What I love about drag is the glitz and the glam. Oh, pause here for a moment because um, I want to answer the question that the abusive mother asks, albeit rhetorically. She asks, how do I parent a child who wants to do drag? And her answer on how to parent the child is to uh, not parent him at all, to instead allow him to be swept along by whatever forces are influencing him and simply stand by while he's used and abused in this way. Although that's probably a far too generous interpretation of this woman's role and motives. Given that she's not only allowing her child to do drag, but also putting him on television, it's pretty clear that the forces influencing the child and driving him to cross-dress are, at least partially, his parents. As the horror movies tell us, it's coming from inside the house. There are a couple more points to be made here, I think, um, some of which require us to unfortunately watch a little bit more of this, which uh, we will do now. Watch. My name is Noah, and I'm transgender. Have you talked to mom and dad about your pictures? What do you think of taking those photos down? The constant reminder that we had to pretend I was a boy. Do you think a mom would ever want to watch me do drag? How do I explain this to my child that she doesn't fully accept novella? Making friends has been a hard thing for me to do. When I'm becoming emo, become more confident. Let me make sure you are appropriately fluffed. This transition has been difficult for them, but they try, and that's all you can ask for. It's important for kids to understand that they're not alone. So my mom started Dragiton. Kids and their families are coming from all over the country where we get to be our true self. Oh God, this is happening. It's Vanessa Shimmer! This is a place of love and support because we need that in this world. This is me, and you better like it. Now, one interesting thing that you see there when you watch this is that uh, it seems like every child featured in the show actually has what appears to be um, a father in the picture. And you notice one there, the father himself is wearing the drag wig. Now, that's probably not a coincidence. I'm sure they they selected for that because they didn't want to, uh, you know, uh, they, they didn't want to promote the stereotype that boys who get involved in this kind of thing oftentimes don't have fathers. So they, they selected families where there's a father there in the picture. But that only emphasizes the fact that there are many different kinds of fatherless homes. And when we talk about the fatherless home epidemic, oftentimes that, that uh, boils down to the statistics of fathers who are physically not in the home. But if you're just looking at that, you're not getting the full picture because the actual epidemic is much, much larger than that. And there are plenty of homes where there's a, where there's a father physically present like, he's a, he's a living, breathing organism taking up physical space within the home, but he's not present in any other way. He's not spiritually present. He's not emotionally present. He's not psychologically present. He's certainly not present as a, a source of, of discipline and direction, which is one of, the, one of the primary things that children need fathers for. So these are all fatherless homes, even if they're, um, their fathers, quote unquote, are physically there. Now, the child at the end there says, uh, this is me and you better like it. 
But tragically, he's wrong on both counts because he's been led wrong. He's been led astray. This is not him. When he's dressed up in girl clothes and prancing around on stage for the enjoyment of predator adults who should all be in prison, uh, it's not him. What is presented on stage is a rejection of everything that comprises his authentic self, a rejection of his masculinity, his boyhood, his childhood, his innocence. All of that is sacrificed. And he's not choosing to sacrifice it because he doesn't know what he's giving up or what the consequences will be. The adults in his life are sacrificing it for him. Now, the fact that this show exists and um, is produced by one of the largest media companies in the world and um, one of the most famous and mainstream models in the world, Tyra Banks is involved as well, and that they're putting this out there at a time when there's such intense and eminently justified backlash over this kind of thing, you know, that all proves yet again, of course, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that there is a conspiracy to groom and sexualize children. Warner Brothers is planting its flag here. They, they will promote the grooming and sexual abuse of children, no matter how much outrage it provokes. They're even willing to lose money to do it. You know, last week we had the, um, um, the clip from Good Morning America from a few years ago when they were talking about child drag performers and they brought a, a child drag queen, quote unquote, on stage. And that was done at a time, as evidenced by the fact that hardly anyone noticed when they did it, that was done at a time when, when the media could do stuff like this and, um, and get away with it. Now you do this, there's going to be outrage. And they know that. So they're willing to deal with that. They're losing, willing to lose money to do it. That's how important it is to them. And that's, a, that's also an important point to be, to be made here and to realize. But there's another point I want to make as well. Consider this. Um, child beauty pageants. Events where young girls are caked in makeup and paraded around on stage, those are dying out all across the Western world. There's been um, even a push in some countries, including in this one, to ban the pageants outright. But even if they haven't been successfully outlawed yet, they're certainly and thankfully not nearly as popular as they once were. There is wide mainstream agreement that it is inappropriate to get your daughter involved in something like this. Worse than inappropriate, it's exploitative and abusive. This is one of the reasons why the horrible TLC show Toddlers and Tiaras was canceled back in 2013. And even people who won't necessarily go that far in describing the pageants, maybe won't call them abusive and exploitative, uh, even most of those people will admit that it's, it's controversial at any rate. You can go to pretty much any left-wing media outlet and find articles that have been written denouncing these kinds of pageants. Certainly if Discovery which owns TLC, had announced last week a revival of toddlers and tiaras, there would be widespread outrage over the decision, and it would be outrage echoed by the left wing and in the mainstream media. After all, why do you need to dress um, little girls up like fashion models and cake makeup on their face and then send them out on stage to strut around? Is, is this how little girls should be spending their time? The answer, of course, is no, and, and most people seem to agree these days. Anyway, that the answer is no. And yet, if you take little boys and put them in dresses and cake them in a makeup, suddenly many of the people who said that this sort of thing sexualizes little girls are okay with it. More than okay, they celebrate it. In fact, Tyra Banks herself, on her short-lived talk show 10 years ago, addressed the issue of child beauty pageants and treated it as a controversial subject. She apparently was against it. Now she's producing a show about drag pageants for boys. How can this be explained? 
Have these people suddenly decided that what was sexualization for girls isn't for boys? No. The answer is not that they don't think that these drag shows sexualize kids. It's that in this case, that's exactly what they want to do. You know, sexualizing girls is wrong, they say. But sexualizing boys for the sake of promoting the LGBT lifestyle, well, that's an entirely different matter as far as they're concerned. And that, I think, is the real point behind all of this. Now let's get to our five headlines. You know, one thing we know about the left is that they hate everything that is good and true in the world and also everything that's delicious, which is why they're waging this war on meat. And look, when the supply chain inflation caused meat prices to soar, uh, their response isn't to solve the supply chain inflation, it's to tell you that this is the perfect opportunity to switch from juicy, delicious, nutritious meat to, uh, you know, something called lentils or veggie patties or even worse, bugs. Outlets like Time Magazine tell us eating bugs is, is the solution to all of your problems. And, uh, you know, the people telling you to do it aren't doing it themselves, of course, as always, but they want you to eat bugs. Um, that's why recently I've come to the realization of something. It's not enough to not eat bugs. You have to be anti-bug eating. And that requires action against the bug eating movement, big bug. The best way to do that is to eat more meat. So I have decided to double down on my meat intake, and I'm inviting you to join me as well with Good Ranchers. For a limited time, Good Ranchers is offering two pounds of free American Wagyu beef when you go to goodranchers.com slash Walsh and enter promo code Walsh at checkout. If you're worried about the supply chain or inflation increasing the price of meat over time, the solution is not lentils. The solution is to uh, go to Good Ranchers. So please don't let the vegans and bug eaters win. We need to double down on eating meat, literally. Two pounds of free Wagyu burgers and zero inflation. What are you waiting for? Use my code Walsh or visit goodranchers.com slash Walsh. If you don't buy the meat in-house, um, then tell the person who does to grab your two pounds of free American burgers today before they're gone. That's promo code Walsh at goodranchers.com slash Walsh. So the White House Correspondent Dinner was uh, back this weekend, um, a time for the ruling class to get together and have a good hearty laugh over how badly they're screwing up the country. And Biden, apparently, in a, in a moment that will, you're going to see this moment, you've already probably seen it a million times, you're going to see it a million more times, Especially as we head into the uh, into the midterms, I mean, this is going to be this is going to be featured this moment in particular on a hundred different ads, and then never mind as we get into twenty twenty four. I mean, this is a this is a moment tailor made for attack ads from the other side. Um, here's Biden having a good laugh about um, how badly he's screwing up America. Let's watch. You know, I think ever since you've come into office, things are really looking up. You know, gas is up, rent is up, food is up, <laughs> everything. No, it really has been a tough first year for you, Mr. President. Yeah, now, the one thing about this is that uh, when that joke is made, I'm not exactly sure what the right reaction is. Because if Biden had sat there and looked angry or something, then, you know, that would be the story, too. I guess they can't take a joke. But but uh, whatever the right reaction is, it's certainly not to laugh. Even if it is kind of an impossible, like, there's there's no winning right there when you're sitting there at an event like this, and uh, someone makes a joke about how your inflation and everything pan to you and your reaction, there's no good reaction. But that only speaks to, that's not a defense of Biden. That's exactly why this event shouldn't be happening in the first place. Because it, it's an event where there's just no, there's no right way to go about it. And especially when 
there is a food shortage and there is inflation and people are suffering economically in so many other ways. That the ruling class is going to get together and, and uh, just have a nice time and you know show off their, uh, their luxury and wealth and all the rest of it. So why would they do it? It's, it's, it's not that they're, you know, one thing I've heard, and I think this is wrong, I've heard from some people criticizing this, some conservatives, that it's like they're, these people are oblivious, they're out of touch is another expression you hear quite a bit. And uh, I actually don't think that that's correct. It's, it, they know how this is perceived. They know that the average person who sees them all in their tuxedos, having a, uh, having a banquet, laughing about these things that are very serious. I mean, inflation, to the people in that room, inflation is a joke because it doesn't really affect them that much because they're all rich. Um, Trevor Noah is somehow a rich, wealthy comedian. Which, that's a different subject, but I'll, I'll never understand that. I mean, I've yet to, and I've given him a shot, but... Trevor Noah, he's almost as bad as like female feminist comedians. I've never heard, I, I cannot think, I mean, if, if someone has an example, let me know, but I can't think of one good joke I've ever heard him make. Not one. But regardless, um, this doesn't affect any of them. So they can have a laugh, they can have a nice laugh about it. Are they out of touch? Do they not, do they not realize how this is perceived by the rest of us? Well, no, they they know. They just. That's the point. And it's not that they don't care either. It's that's the point. They're quite aware of how it's perceived. And that's the point. This is about them establishing their place atop the hierarchy. It's the same thing with the Oscars. There's always these questions about, well, why would they still have the Oscars? Don't they realize, oh, these out-of-touch celebrities? Once again, no. Yes, they, they realize how it seems. They realize how it's perceived. You you're, you're have a, a four-hour ceremony on primetime television to just talk about how great you are and award yourselves and pat yourselves on the back. They know how that seems to the rest of us. And they're happy about that because, again, it's about, it's about reestablishing the hierarchy. It's about them saying to everybody else, we're up here and you're down here. And if you're resentful and all that, that's fine. That's just you being jealous of us. We're okay with you as, as the peons being resentful and jealous. So I think that's crucial for us to understand about this. Later on, Joe Biden himself got up and did his own stand-up routine. And let's uh, listen to some of that. But I'm not worried about the midterms. I'm not worried about them. We may end up with more partisan gridlock, but I'm confident we can work it out during my remaining six years in the presidency. (laughs) And folks, I'm not really here to roast the GOP. That's not my style. Besides, there's nothing I can say about the GOP that Kevin McCarthy hasn't already put on tape. <laughs> and, you know, at the, same, at the same time, a lot of people say the Republican Party is too extreme, too divisive, too controlled by one person. They say that's not your father's Republican Party. Ronald Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear this wall down. Today's Republicans say, Tear down Mickey Mouse's house. And pretty soon they'll be storming Cinderella's castle, you can be sure of it. But Republicans <laughs> seem to support one fella, some guy named Brandon. He's having a really good year. And I'm kind of happy for him. Hmm. Hmm. 
I mean, the Brandon joke was okay. That was, that was, that was, uh, that was, you know, I, I give that a C plus. Not, not too bad. It's, it's like slightly self-deprecating. But you got you to throw that in. You got to throw in the slightly self-deprecating joke. Um, the other thing is, like, that was for the most part um, cringy and embarrassing. And um, nothing more cringy and embarrassing than the comment about six more years. And you could tell, even though they applauded in the audience, you know, no one, no one in uh, sitting in that room feels that way about it. I mean, these are the same people, remember, who uh, a couple of weeks ago, when Obama showed up in the White House, they left Joe Biden to just wander around by himself, standing alone, sat in the corner. So that's how they feel about Joe Biden. But they had to applaud. Oh, yeah, six more years. Sure, sure, Gramps. Um, cringy and embarrassing, yes. But at, at, the, at the same time, he did whatever meds they pumped into him so that he could basically be coherent for minutes at a time. Now keep in mind, this was not just, that was a minute clip, but he spoke for like a few minutes in a row and was basically coherent for that entire time. So I guess you give credit to whatever meds they put him on because they, they pumped him full of something. And this is the point we've gotten to now with Joe Biden where um, if you can see a clip of him speaking for one minute and making sense and not just randomly wandering off the podium or turning his back to the audience and talking to the wall. or like If you could just see for one minute standing in front of a microphone and speaking and making basically making sense, that's impressive. You're impressed by that. And this is the president of the United States, and we're impressed by that. Oh, good for him. He spoke for a minute. That's an improvement. This is the president we're talking about. My God. Uh, a little more political news. A new book says that Kamala Harris is, uh, here's a shocker, bit of a diva in the White House, apparently. Who would have thought? Uh, this is a new book that's, that I believe is just released. And let's watch this uh, interview on uh, NBC. Kamala Harris. Uh felt disrespected. Here's one anecdote you have. Harris worried that Biden's staff looked down on her. She fixated on real and perceived snubs in ways the West Wing found tedious. When Harris walked into a room, the White House staff did not stand up the way they did for Biden. The vice president took it as a sign of disrespect. What was astonishing here is apparently there was a meeting about this. Yes, the the uh, chief of staff to uh, Kamala Harris telephoned the West Wing and told a senior advisor in the West Wing to Biden, the VP has noticed this, and she, she uh, w- would like folks to stand, staff members to stand when she enters the room. This pulls back, the, I think, the, the curtain on what this White House is really like. The tensions are deep, and they are real between the VP's office and the West Wing. Uh, obviously, the public image is, is, is what it is, but they, this is an ongoing challenge. And what is hovering over all of this, Chuck, yeah. is 24. So clear. Is Biden going to run again? And if not, is it going to be VP Harris? That is the mood music hanging over the entire Democratic Party right now, as are Biden's poor numbers. Um, by the way, that's from a book called This Will Not Pass, which uh, is, is being released, I think, tomorrow. And um, I, I did just go check, just, just out of curiosity, on Amazon. And uh, right now it is, it did surge one spot ahead of Johnny the Walrus. So Johnny the Walrus was number one overall on Amazon for four days. And right now it's at number three, as This Will Not Pass just passed in front of it. And I could, first of all, consider this to be in a... In, an attack on my identity as a children's author and an assault on my psychological well-being to be just at number three on Amazon. So you can go to johnnywalrus.com 
um, and make sure that we remedy that. But in any case, that's some of the, what, what we hear in the book is um, about Kamala Harris being a diva, which, which is, you know, that's exactly what any rational person, this is exactly the kind of thing that a rational person expected to hear when they selected Kamala Harris. And now Democrats, of course, this is not um, any kind of uh, great political insight to say that Democrats are in, are in trouble for 2024 because Joe Biden might claim that he's going to run again. And maybe he thinks that he will. And maybe he actually will. But they have to know that that's just not going to work. I mean, the idea of Joe Biden, look at what he is right now. We're impressed with him stringing a sentence together for a year, you know, for a minute, rather. Uh, certainly not a year. And now imagine him at the age, he's going to be 82, running with the claim that he's going to be in office until he's 86. That's just not going to work. But the other, on the other hand, um, that seems more desirable than having Kamala Harris because that's how unpopular she was. This is what happens when you take someone who got like 0.1% in the polls and you make them the vice president. Because you're worried more about identity politics and uh, you've decided to take the affirmative action approach. This is what you end up with. Now, one more piece of political news. Um, Speaking of people who have no shot in 2024, I got to play this for you. Asa Hutchinson is the uh, eunuch governor of Arkansas, who perhaps not surprisingly supports turning little boys into eunuchs. Um, Of of his many sins as the governor of Arkansas, he, as you may recall, uh, vetoed a bill that would have made it illegal to chemically castrate little kids and sterilize little kids. Um, And he was not in, in favor of that bill because he thinks that kids, you know, it should be okay to do that to kids. He had an announcement of his own to make on CNN. Let's watch a bit of that. You spoke at the Politics and Eggs event in New Hampshire, a traditional stop for any presidential hopeful. Are you seriously considering running for president? Uh, I am, but you've got to get through, of course, uh, this year. But that's an option that's on the table. And that's one of the reasons I was in New Hampshire. And you had Secretary Mayorkas on and the border security is such an incredible issue. That's what the kind of thing that I'm passionate about whenever uh, you look at we need to have Title 42 or some equivalent to it. Secondly, we've got to go after the cartels in a more vigorous fashion. Uh, and then thirdly, we've got to support the states in, in the role that we play. So there's much to be done there. I care about those issues. And so, yes, I'm going to be engaged this year and hopefully beyond that. Even if President Trump runs, you will run? consider running his 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 uh, candidacy won't affect yours no it won't uh, I've made it clear I think we ought to have a different direction in the future and so uh, I'm not aligned in uh, uh, with him uh, on some of his endorsements but also uh, the direction he wants to take our country I think he did a lot of good things for our country but we need to go a different direction and so that's not a factor in my decision making process Asa Hutchinson thinks he's going to be president, thinks he has a chance. Um, that I have a better chance of becoming president. Like, actually, a much better chance. And I have, I have zero chance. I have zero chance, but much better than this guy. Um, there is simply no path for Republicans like this anymore. And by the way, there hasn't been, um, there hasn't been one since Romney ran and lost. Um, or rather since McCain ran and lost. 
there hasn't been a path for Republicans like this kind of Republican. The milquetoast uh, establishment Republican who's just, as I say, the, the, what I think the word for them really is the speed bump Republicans who maybe will lay down in the road and just try to stop, not stop, momentarily slow the progress of, uh, of leftism. But a lot of times they won't even do that much. There's no path anymore. There hasn't been for years, and there certainly is not now. What does he think? I'd like to see his internal polling when he's sitting down with his advisors. What, what exactly are they telling him? Where is your audience? Where's your base exactly? Doesn't exist, I can tell you that. All right, this is an interesting story from CBS. We're going to get out of politics before we go back to it in a moment. But a um, little bit of history here. It's a story from CBS News. Says um, when Mexican police found a pile of about 150 skulls in a cave near the Guatemalan border, they thought they were looking at a crime scene and took the bones to the state capitol. Turns out it was a very cold case. It took a decade of tests and analysis to determine the skulls were from a from sacrificial victims killed between um, 900 and 1200 A.D. So this is a crime from cold case about a thousand years old. This is according to the National Institute of Anthropology and History um, on Wednesday. State Capitol, uh, the Institute said, believing they were looking at a crime scene, investigators collected the bones and started examining them. Um, the police in 2012 weren't being stupid. The border area around the town of Frontera, uh, in, in, uh, where this happened, has long been plagued by violence and cartels and everything. And so that's what they, th- they thought they were looking at. Uh, and pre-Hispanic skull piles in Mexico usually show a hole bashed through each side of every skull and were usually found in ceremonial plazas, not caves. Now, they say usually because they find a lot of skull piles. That's kind of a troubling thing when you can, usually, when you can say a statement like that. Well, the, uh, the skull piles are usually found with big holes punctured in them. And uh, they're usually found in certain areas where we know the ceremonies were conducted. But in this case, they found them in, in caves. And what does that tell you? Um, it's because this is where, you know, the Aztec Empire was. And um, this is what they did. They, they um, believed that in order for the sun to rise, in order for them to continue existing, they had to continually appease their gods with human sacrifices. And this happened not just in one location, but across the entire empire. And thousands and thousands of people were killed. Slaves were taken, oftentimes children, oftentimes women. And they were killed in various different ways. Uh, of course, the primary method of, of execution for the Aztecs, anyway, for human sacrifices, was to uh, pin them down to a stone slab and cut open their chests and pull their hearts out. And then they would cut off the people's limbs and um, the the kind of the trunk of the now decapitated, butchered person would be rolled down the temple steps, and the limbs would oftentimes be eaten by the uh, by the the priest. Now I bring all this up, not just because I'm trying to shock and horrify you, but because this is history and this is what happened before the Spanish showed up, before the conquistadors showed up, and but that's an event that we're supposed to, we're told, mourn. This is a, a terrible thing. When the conquistadors came, the Europeans came, and they conquered, you know, the new world. And we're supposed to mourn this. And we're supposed to continually apologize for it also, even though none of us around today had anything to do with it. Not that I'm, not that I begrudge, you know, I, I'm, I'm fine taking the credit. 
um, for something like that. Because as it turns out, you know, this is what the conquistadors were up against, if you can imagine. And you can't, because none of us can. You are, you've already sailed across an unknown sea, and you land somewhere, and you really don't know where you are. You know, it's impossible for us to even conceptualize this because we, you know, we have GPS. We have, so everything, you know, our, our perception of the world is completely different. We, we, because we know what the world looks like. And you could pull out your phone and just connect with a satellite and it'll tell you how to get anywhere in the world. Um, they didn't have that back then. And so they had no idea where they were. Um, you're landing on a plot of land. You don't know how big it is. You don't know what's, what's there. You have no idea. And they venture inland. And the first thing that happens is they come across these big temples and pyramids and they climb up and they go inside. And, and oftentimes the place is drenched in blood and it smells like human flesh and there are decapitated heads and, and limbs all over the place. And they found this everywhere they went. And they're vastly outnumbered by this enormous empire of warriors who this is what they do. They just capture and kill people. And they managed to uh, conquer this, this, uh, this empire. Extraordinary story. And it's a story of courage and heroism and something we should all be grateful for. Thank God. I mean, this, this civilization that butchered women, cuts, cut the hearts out of children by the thousands. Thank God they were conquered. That's what we should be saying. All right. Going back into politics briefly here. Um, the DHS secretary appeared on CNN over the weekend to defend um, the Ministry of Truth that they have put in place, what they're calling the Disinformation Board. And uh, the DHS secretary says that, hey, everything you're hearing about it, it's all a bunch of, uh, it's just conspiracy theories, don't worry about it. Because he says, you, you can, we can trust them. We can trust them. Let's listen. Will American citizens be monitored? No. Guarantee what, that. Well, so what we do... We, we in the Department of Homeland Security don't monitor uh, American citizens. You don't, but will we, this board change that? No, no, no. The board does not have any operational authority or capability. What it will do is gather together best practices in addressing the threat of disinformation from foreign state adversaries, from the cartels, and disseminate those best practices to the operators that have been executing in addressing this threat for years. Oh, okay. Well, then there's nothing to worry about. I mean, the people that are in charge of us, they've told us that we can trust them and they're not going to monitor Americans. How often have we heard that from government agencies? Oh, we don't, we don't monitor Americans, except when we do. But other than the times when we do, we don't. Now, he was also asked about Nina Jankowitz, who's the uh, left-wing activist who's going to run this disinformation board, the Ministry of Truth. And he says that uh, nothing to worry about there either because she's totally neutral and very trustworthy. Let's listen to that. Republicans are criticizing your decision, the administration's decision to choose Nina Jankowitz to lead this disinformation board. They say she is not somebody who is neutral. Your response? Eminently qualified a renowned expert in the field of disinformation. Absolutely so. Would you be okay if Donald Trump 
for president if he created this disinformation board, governance board or if it is in place and he wins again in 2024 that he's in charge of such a thing? I believe that this working group that gathers together, gathers together best practices, makes sure that our, our work is uh, coordinated, consistent with those best practices, that we're safeguarding the right of free speech, that we're safeguarding civil liberties, I think is an extraordinarily important endeavor. Before I let you go, I'm sure you uh, have heard that Kevin McCarthy, now the Republican leader who hopes to be speaker if Republicans take over in November, uh, will consider impeaching you. Oh, he gives reaction to that, but um, I assume he's opposed to being impeached. I don't know. Now, we know that what he said, he said Nina Jankowitz is, is neutral. Um, we know that that's not true because she's on the record with her. She's, she's ideological. She's a leftist. Uh, very open about that. She's been on the record about that in the past. We also know, even though she's supposed to be a, a, a foremost expert in disinformation, I don't know how exactly you become an expert in disinformation. In a way, everybody at CNN are experts in dis- disinformation, I suppose. Experts in disseminating it anyway. Um but so that's one of the ways that we know that she's not neutral is because we, we know she's a leftist. But also we know that she's not neutral because she is, we assume, um, a human being. Now, if she was some kind of robot, that might be different. But even then, if she was a robot, then she would have been built and programmed by somebody, which means also not neutral. Because every, there, there is no neutral human being on earth. That doesn't exist. Every human being has a worldview, has, a, has opinions, has a perspective, has some kind of ideological commitment, even if it's half-baked and self-contradictory and all the rest of it, which it is for a lot of people, especially on the left. But still, there are no neutral people, does not exist. And when he says that she's totally neutral, we, we know that that's a lie. But the reason that he says that is because the only way that something like this could possibly actually work is if it was actually being run by neutral people. We would need to be able to trust that the disinf- what they're labeling disinformation actually is and that they don't have any other motivations and that they're not politically invested in any way whatsoever. Like in order for it to work, we would need to be able to trust that, but we can't because no human being is neutral. And that's the whole point, really. That, that's why we, the government can't do things like this. Because we're relying on them as political actors to be the arbiters of what is true and what isn't. What is valid information and what isn't. The fact that no human being is neutral is the whole point. And that's that's what makes this so dangerous. And of course, even though he says that, yeah, well, if Trump was in charge of the government and he was running the disinformation board, um, I'd be fine with that. He says that, but of course we know that that's also not true whatsoever. Um, One other quick thing before we get to the comment section. I want to put this up on the screen. This is, let's go to nine, clip nine here. This is um, a tweet from... This is a guy who works at Microsoft, and his name is Justin Nelson. His handle is the Geek Diplomat. Kind of tells you what we're dealing with. And he puts, uh, he's got an image of his uh, positive COVID-19 test because he's still taking COVID tests, apparently. And, and this is his caption. 
rage crying this morning. <laughs> uh, two years of isolating and keeping my toddler safe, and I get infected with COVID-19 at a mandatory team offsite, even while wearing a KN95 mask. Uh, now my toddlers are exposed. This isn't over. We need to uh, immunize under fives now. Hashtag immunize under fives now. It's a hashtag calling for you know, injecting kids under the age of five. Imagine being a man who not only rage cries at all. I don't know what a rage cry is. I know what rage is. I do have some experience with that. But crying because you're enraged? Um, I, I don't have a lot of familiarity with that, but ra- rage crying, number one, is, is the first problem. And then doing it over a mild illness because you got a cold. And then announcing it to the world, shamelessly. And we can't expect from the kind of guy who rage cries over a cold. I don't know if he's married or not. I mean, he has a kid. You got to feel bad for the wife. Just think about that, ladies. How would you react if you went into the room and your husband is, is crying because he has a cold? And then you, and then you said to him, what, are, you, are you crying? And he said, I'm only crying because I'm angry. Uh, that's... How do you go forward as, as, a, as a woman in that situation, knowing that this is the kind of man you married? I mean, I'm sure it's not news to her. But anyway, the kind of guy who rage cries, I assume we, we probably cannot, uh, obviously we can't rely on him to have any sort of introspection. But if he was capable of introspection, then he might start thinking to himself, well, wow, um, I have completely, my, my life has, has revolved around this for two years. I have sacrificed two years of my life just to avoid getting a cold. And I've and worse than that, I've sacrificed um, my, my child being able to live a normal life so that he doesn't get a cold. And, and, then, uh, and then it happens anyway. So an introspective person, first of all, would not have gotten to this point in the first place, but if they did, would stop and think, well, you know, maybe the lesson here is that I should just be living my life because these kinds of things are going to happen. Maybe when he's done, when he wipes the tears away and is done rage crying, maybe he'll start uh, thinking about some of those things. Let's get now to the comment section. Daily cancellations are the law and order of the day. The sweet baby Evox Pop says, just two questions. How soon can this Ministry of Truth and its board be disbanded? And who has the power to do it? Well, uh, the only people that could do it are, you know, this is a, another government initiative, government agency, government board, whatever. If the government's doing it, then the only people who can stop it are also in the government. And um, our only ability to do anything about it is to try to vote people into office who will put an end to it. Um, but that's, that's, that's the issue here, is um, when Republicans are in control of the executive branch— can we rely on them to disband the Ministry of Truth? You know, I think if Ron DeSantis becomes president, then that's exactly the kind of thing that he would do. And he's proven that with the way that he's governed Florida. But um, a lot of Republicans, no, I, I wouldn't trust them to do it. Because here's, here's the thing. Um, a Ministry of Truth, just like every time the government expands and gets into a new area, uh, it always means, of course, more power for the government and the people who are in the government, especially the people running the government. And having your own ministry of truth means a lot of power. And so you need people in office who are willing to 
sacrifice their own power, who are willing to say, this is an enormous amount of power that this particular thing gives me, and I'm willing to give it up. Um, Most Republicans have proven over the course of many decades that they are not actually willing to do that, which is why, even though every Republican campaigns on shrinking the size of the government, none of them, I mean, literally none of them have done it so far. Because you run the government, and the bigger the government is, the more power that you have. So that's, uh, that's kind of the catch-22 here. Um, that means that there's a, just a very small select number of Republicans who we can trust to take a, a radical action like that. And uh, like I said, small, small select group. Um, let's see. Jax says, love his point about going to college after high school. I served a two-year mission after high school, and my college experience so far has been a lot better for me than it would have uh, been if I hadn't done that. I feel a bit more mature and understand who I am better than if I went to college straight after high school. Um, That's exactly the point. And you're not going to find very many people who wait a few years to go to college and regret the fact that they didn't go right at the age of 18. Meanwhile, there are a whole lot of people who regret the fact that they went to college right out of high school. I know there's not a lot of regret in the other way, but there's a whole lot of regret um, in the other camp. Let's see. Another comment says, one week ago, I attended the Hodge Twins comedy show in California. It was hilarious. They opened it up for Q&A, and the first question that was asked of the twins was, are you guys part of the sweet baby gang? And they didn't know what it was. I yelled out SBG for life. Our conservative community is growing so rapidly now because the left is so insane. Love the uh, MW show. They didn't know what the Sweet Baby Gang is. I once again feel attacked by that. But I love the fact that we, we, are, we are growing. The cult is growing. And anytime you could put somebody on the spot who, who will have no idea what you're talking about, you should definitely do it. Um, let's see. Lance says, love that Walsh comes swinging for Ben multiple after multiple speeches in a row, LOL. Oh, he doesn't need the help, but we are a team here at the Daily Wire. That's, and that's definitely not the case with every conservative media outlet, so you can't take that for granted, but I think it is here. Um, Whiteout says, Matt, I recently found out that my parents enjoy pineapple on their pizza. This has scarred and devastated me emotionally. How do I confront them of their insurrection against my well-being? Look, as a dedicated contrarian, and I get these comments with questions about pineapple pizza all the time, um, And as a contrarian, I've decided, I guess, that I'm going to become an apologist for pineapple on pizza. I don't even like it that much. I don't hate it as much as many people do. But I am now officially in favor of pineapple on pizza just because I'm sick of people complaining about it so much. So I'm on your parents' side. In fact, you know what? Haven't done this in a while. But you, sir, are banned from the show. You know, last week, my LGBTQ plus masterpiece of a book, Johnny the Walrus, became the number one best-selling book in America and uh, is still at least in the top five. And of course, the deranged leftists saw this as a great opportunity to be even more deranged. Amazon quickly followed up my great success by banning the book's advertisements after a leaked video revealed their infantile employees holding some sort of cry session over the book, which is quite hilarious. Uh, So I'm celebrating a little bit. This Wednesday, May 4th, I'll be doing a live book signing at 7 p.m. Central on YouTube. Brett Cooper, host of the comment section, will join me to moderate an audience Q&A as I answer your questions live and sign copies of the greatest children's book ever written. The only way you can get your signed copy of Johnny the Walrus is to become a Daily Wire all-access member using code WALRUS. When you do so, you'll not only receive a signed copy of Johnny the Walrus, but you'll also get your 
Uh, get our iconic Leftist Tears Tumblr, which really goes with Johnny Lawrence because there's so many Leftist Tears, you need a Tumblr for them. So you got to get all that together. If you haven't gotten your copy yet, now is the time. Head to dailywire.com slash subscribe to get your new all-access membership using code WALRUS to receive a signed copy of Johnny the Walrus right now. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. For our daily cancellation today, we turn our attention to an article from one of our local outlets here in Tennessee called The Tennessean. In a recent piece, the Tennessean extends an invitation to us that um, none of us asked for or wanted. Headline is, Meet Nashville's Trans-Queer Latinx Neurodivergent Theologian. Now, you'll notice already that this headline is nominally six words long, and yet after the second word, Nashville, it takes a three-word detour into utter gibberish and doesn't return to reality and words that exist in the dictionary until the end with the word theologian. Everything in between is abject nonsense. This gives you an idea as to what to expect as we venture into the text of the article itself. It begins, Robin Henderson Espinoza is the only Nashville-based trans-queer Latinx neurodivergent public theologian that they know. Wait, that who knows? That they know? Sounds like there's a sentence cut off here, or maybe the author of this piece had a stroke while they were typing. But it turns out that, of course, the they refers to Robin Henderson Espinoza, who despite having three names, is only one person, but still goes by they anyway. And it continues, I don't know anybody like me, Henderson Espinoza, who uses gender-neutral pronouns, said in an interview. Yet it was only recently when Henderson Espinoza, 45, got to know their better self, or rather, got to know their self better. Got to know their self better. Okay. Such as the diagnosis that they are on the autism spectrum. Amid this eventful period in their life, Henderson Espinoza also made time to write reflections about their personal experience and its connection to larger sociopolitical events, which they turned into a book. Henderson Espinoza's new book, Body Becoming, A Path to Our Liberation, released on Tuesday. Somehow I don't feel a threat from that book to Johnny the Walrus. I don't think that I have to worry about that making it into the top 10. Um, I must again, though, point out uh, here that the the correct gender-neutral pronoun for an individual entity is it. So if you're really neither male nor female, and yet you're a single person, then you are an it. But Robin, just like every other supposed gender-neutral person, doesn't want to use it because that sounds dehumanizing, which it is. But rejecting the binary of female and male is by its nature dehumanizing as you are rejecting the very human nature which declares that there are only males and females. These people want to have their dehumanized cake and eat it too. Um, Robin says that she, and I, I think this is a female, but I'm taking a bit of a shot, shot in the dark here. Um, she is, unlike anyone she knows, incredibly unique. I don't know anybody like me. Now, that's obviously the point of all this. The accumulation of meaningless identity labels is a narcissistic attempt to present yourself as more complex, more interesting, deeper, more profound than the average person. And yet it has precisely the opposite effect. But she's not done claiming labels. Um, it continues, Henderson Espinoza, an ordained Baptist minister who has a PhD in philosophy, knew for many years that they were transgender, but didn't explore what that meant to them until 2017 when they moved to Nashville from California. Henderson Espinoza found a Vanderbilt physician who was overseeing Henderson Espinoza's hormone therapy. Then in 2018, Henderson Espinoza learned that they're on the autism spectrum. It never occurred to me that my brain worked differently, Henderson Espinoza wrote in their new book. I realized that my socialization in the church and academy had been through neuronormative people who didn't understand my body or my mind and had curated such a disconnection from my body. Wait, 
if you didn't, if you don't identify as either male or female, then what are the hormones supposed to achieve exactly? Meanwhile, Robin, addicted to the self-satisfied high she got from accruing the labels trans, non-binary, latinx, decided to go back for another hit, adding neurodivergent to the list. As has happened with so many other things, the category of mental illness has now been fully subsumed by the LGBT alphabet crew. This is why LGBT activists will so often list their mental health conditions as if the conditions themselves are sexual identities. And like sexual identities, um, mental illness has been made into something trendy, you know, desirable, another way to set yourself apart. The made-up term neuronormative has the same scoffing tone and dismissive ring to it as the made-up term cisgender. And that's the other thing about all of the obsessive labeling that leftists do to themselves. While labeling themselves, they also put labels on the rest of us that we did not choose or agree to or consent to. Cisgender is not a term that any so-called cisgender person chooses for themselves. It's a label that trans activists place on us. Now, God forbid we label them in a way they don't like, but you know they can label us all they want. Those are the rules they want us to play by anyway, but I refuse. Also note in that last segment, again, the sheer volume of absolute certifiable nonsense, especially the last sentence. I realized that my socialization in the church and academy had been through neuronormative people who didn't understand my body or my mind and had curated such a disconnection from my body. Curated a disconnection from your body? How is a disconnection curated? How can someone else curate your own disconnection, whatever that means? What in the hell are you babbling about? Well, Robin does quite a lot of babbling, it turns out. Uh, This is common of leftists generally, but especially those who identify themselves as pastors and theologians. Those two labels, as it happens, are the most absurd of all the titles Robin gives to herself. As evidenced by this clip of Robin um, Henderson Espinosa, originally posted to Twitter by a group called Q Christian Fellowship, which says in its bio that its mission is to cultivate radical belonging for LGBTQ plus people. And it achieves this, apparently, through incoherent prattle like this. Listen. The not yet is the imaginal space of becoming. The not yet is is in the space of a realized utopia. The not yet is the Christian message that we must embody in critical and creative ways to steward a narrative that calls us into being human with one another again. That is the kind of hope I want to invite us to embody. That is the kind of queerness that I hope we can practice. One that reimagines language and practice and narratives that can be midwifed and stewarded through the imaginal. That is hope to me. That is the kind of power I think we have as a collective of believers, of doubters, of Christians, as those who are becoming. So this is like the leftist version of speaking in tongues, because no part of what you just heard qualifies as English. Neither does it qualify as Christian. I mean, it is religious, no question, but this is not the Christian religion you're hearing there. Um, Just to quote one section of it, she says, that is the kind of queerness that I hope we can practice, one that reimagines language and practice and narratives that can be midwifed and stewarded through the imaginal. Oh, okay. Now, 
If you listen to that and you hear all the big words and think, well, maybe I'm just too stupid to understand what she's saying, then you're having exactly the reaction that people who speak this way want you to have. And you're also wrong. You are not too stupid. Your failure to understand gibberish is not a shortcoming on your part. This is just how smug leftist academics speak, because for one thing, they would rather dazzle you with their faux intelligence than actually communicate like normal human beings. They don't want to be understood. They want to be admired. When it comes to leftist ideas in particular, this is especially the case. They hide behind this impenetrable fortress of scholarly sounding bull because along with wanting to impress you with what it usually turns out to be a pretty middling intellect, they also want to disguise their true meaning, such as there actually is any true meaning at all. Whatever they're trying to say, if they're trying to say anything, they prefer to keep it safe, locked inside a, you know, a box of gibberish and buzzwords. The hope is that you'll just nod confusedly and go along with whatever it is they want you to do or whatever direction they want to take you. They want you to scratch your head and shrug your shoulders and say, uh, okay, sure, let's be... Uh, stewarded to the imaginal space of queerness. Uh, Sounds good. What they don't want you to do is stop and say, wait a second, what exactly are you trying to say? Can you speak like somebody who isn't suffering from a severe concussion and just put it in plain English for me? They don't want that because if there is any meaning underneath all this nonsense, it's something quite horrifying. Something that they clearly don't want you to see or understand. And that is why, finally, Robin, the neurolatinx transbinary divergent theologian, is today canceled. And we'll leave it there. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, production manager Pavel Vodowski. Our associate producer is McKenna Waters. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. And hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2022. Joe Biden belly laughs at your pain during the White House Correspondents Association dinner. America's most famous leftist intellectual praises Donald Trump. And the Italian government turns feminist, I'm sad to say. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.